Good morning. Thank you for sitting through that long passage. I was like trying to figure out how to cut it out and make it shorter, and it was all relevant. So thanks for your patience. <laughs> um, so as Dave said, I'm Denise. My family, Eric, and my two helpers over here, who are going to be really awesome and quiet this morning, um, Joshua and Maddie, we've all been here for about two years. And um, I've preached a few times on but I'm going to start a little bit differently this morning than I usually do. And the reason for that, as you may have guessed from the sermon that we read or from the text that we read, is that we're going to talk about some kind of heavy stuff this morning. Um, this passage talks about body image and it talks about infertility. And so I'm going to talk about both of those things. And I'm actually going to share a little bit about my own journey with infertility. And I want to be clear that I don't take either of those topics lightly. Um, I know there are people in this room, men and women, for whom there may be pain associated with that. And for the folks online, I know that there are folks online who may have pain with those topics. Um, but my own experience with infertility was that our reticence to talk about it, particularly in the church, I think, actually made me feel more isolated. And it made me feel distant from my church community during a season of life that was really hard for me. Um, so I'm going to dive in, and I'm not going to shy away from those topics. Uh, but before I start, I want to offer you space to care for yourself in whatever way you need to do that this morning. So if either of those topics are hitting you hard right now, and you need to like tune me out for a minute, Go for it. Like, pull up a video of a goat jumping on a trampoline or a baby panda or whatever you need. Um, for a season of my life, the dailypuppy.com was like a sanctuary, so head over there. Just be quiet with your oohs and ahs. Um, but really, you have permission to do that. If you want to be alone, use the church space, spread out, go find the couches over by the entrance if you need that space. Um, if you want somebody to pray for you, not just after the sermon, but even right now. Um, Pastor Dave and Pastor Maddox DL and Pastor Allison are all available. So if you guys want to raise your hands and show everybody where you are, um, grab them anytime. I will not be offended. Interrupt me. Go get them. Um, or, you know, if you are feeling like a walk and a cup of coffee is going to minister to your soul better right now than listening to a sermon on infertility, go for it. There's a Starbucks in the Fred Meyer across the street. Um, we will not be offended. No one's going to judge you. We trust you to know, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, what you need this morning and to know what's going to be meaningful for you. And regardless of how you choose to engage today, um, know that you are welcome and you belong. And we want to hold space as a community for whatever it is that you're bringing with you today. Okay. Big breath, ready? <laughs> so the first thing that I wanted to share was just a little bit about why I chose this passage. Uh, when Dave approached Allison and I about the series, this text actually came to mind like immediately. And that never happens for me. Usually I, I really have to like wrestle and spend, excuse me, spend time figuring out what I'm gonna talk about. Um, but this one just popped into my head immediately. And it was a little bit scary because when that question popped into my head, almost simultaneously, this question popped into my head. Did God cause Rachel's infertility 
in order to show favor to Leah. We saw that in verse 31. It says that when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to have children. And when that verse came to mind, I thought, whoa, what's the deal, God? Did you hurt Rachel for Leah's sake? Would you do that? Is that who you are? Because that sounds kind of cruel. And then I started to think about how often I read this passage in the past, and I didn't ask that question. When I was younger, before my own experience with trying to conceive, I think I just sort of read past that part as if it were a natural thing, right? Leah was unloved, or not as loved as well as Rachel, and so God gave her children, and that sort of evened things out a little bit. And I didn't really think much more about it. But in the past decade or so, a lot of life has happened, and my perspective has changed. Um, I think a few of you know, but not many know, um, that Eric and I spent about three and a half years um, be trying to conceive before Joshua, before we became pregnant with Joshua. And um, it was a really, really hard season for us. You know, every month there was this anxiety of trying to time things just right, and then that excruciating wait to find out if we'd finally conceived, and then that devastation when the test was negative again. And there were doctor visits and tests and medical bills in this cloud of deep depression that just sort of settled on top of me. And we didn't make it to church very often, but when we did, usually I found myself sitting in the pew or sometimes outside in the car um, just weeping because I couldn't reconcile the pain that I was experiencing with the idea of a good and just and compassionate God. I didn't understand what was going on and, and I couldn't make a sense of it. And so today when I read that God opened Leah's womb and, and Rachel couldn't conceive, that scary question just sort of jumps off the page. God, did you do that? Did you cause infertility for Rachel? Did you give her that pain that I know about so that Leah could have satisfaction? Is that who you are? And I want to pause here for a second and just point out how important it is that we read scripture in community because of questions like that, right? Because if you've not had any experience with infertility in your own life or in that of um, someone that you love, you might not see the heaviness in that verse. You might miss it and you might not ask the question. But when we read in community, our stories and our experiences inform one another's reading of the text so that we see what we wouldn't otherwise see. I think it's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit brings out the fullness of the text and sort of forces us to wrestle with it in new ways. That's why we need women preachers, right? And men preachers and preachers of every background and ethnicity who encompass the fullness of humanity because otherwise those questions never arise. And, and we hear just a fraction of what scripture has to say. And so when my story informed my reading of this text, that question jumped out at me. And, and I, I had to ask like, how is God interacting with the world? What is going on here? And I knew that I had to preach on it. 
And I knew that because I'm far along in my own journey of healing um, that I believe again in the goodness of God. I trust God again, and I know that God is compassionate and present in our pain. And I knew that even if that question was scary, if I wrestled with the text, God would have something for me in it. And this is a little bit of a side note, but I feel like I need to mention that my kind of healing journey wasn't the result of my getting pregnant. I think sometimes we think, oh, you deal with infertility and then a baby comes and then that fixes everything. Um, but for me, it was actually several years after my kids were born that uh, God brought me to a place of understanding that I didn't trust God. And then it took time after that for me to get to a place where I wanted to trust God again. So having a baby didn't fix things. I think God brought about healing in God's timing. And I had a, a good friend who asked me, you know, if you never had kids, would you still believe in the goodness of God? And I'd like to think that God would have brought me to that place, um, but that's not my lived experience. I don't know how that would have played out, and so I don't want to make that assumption. But what I do know is that when that question arose about how God interacted with Leah and Rachel, I believed that wrestling with the text would be worth it. I didn't know if I was going to get a full answer, because honestly, those seem fewer and farther between these days. Um, but I knew that there would be some bit of grace, something worth holding on to. And so I prayed through, and I studied this passage. And the first thing that popped out was how this story about Leah and Rachel plays with the ways in which women in the ancient Near East would have been assigned value. So from biblical texts and from other records, um, this is a society in which women have a really diminished role in comparison to men, right? This is a patriarchal society. So the patriarch is the decision maker, the property owner, the heir of any inheritance. Genealogy, genealogies list men. Tribes are named after men. And the women are often kind of incidental in the stories. And we see that even in our text today. When the baby boy is born, the mom talks about how she picked his name and, and why she named him. And when Leah has a daughter, we're told her name. That's it. And even that is actually a little bit of an anomaly. Usually in scripture, um, the women's names, the women's births aren't recounted except if they're relevant to the story later, which is the case with Dina. So this is the world that these women inhabit. But our text touches on these two key ways that the women in this society could gain value, the ways that they fit, and that is through physical beauty and through childbearing. We're told in the verses that precede this, um, we didn't read it, but that Jacob loved Rachel because she had a beautiful figure and she was good looking. It's her beauty that gives her value in Jacob's eyes. That's why he chooses her over Leah. And as you may recall, Laban plays a trick on Jacob and gets him drunk. And so instead of marrying Rachel, he marries her sister Leah, which honestly is like a whole commentary on Jacob. Like, I don't know how you do that, but different sermon. Anyway. Jacob feels betrayed, right? Because he ended up with the less attractive woman, and that is less valuable to him. 
So beauty is, is a means of value in this world. It's a way of having significance. And then the second means of gaining value is, is childbearing, right? We see that in our text, how these women try to sort of gain significance and do gain significance in the family by giving birth to children, particularly sons. So these are the way that, ways that women are allowed to fit into the narrative. Even as marginalized members of society, these things belong to them, childbearing and physical beauty. One of the scholars that I read said, a woman's womb was her destiny. That's, that's how she, she described it, right? It was her future. Her beauty and her ability to have children are her currency in the world. And I think it's worth noting, by the way, that we're not as far removed from that reality as we'd like to think that we are. If you don't think that beauty and motherhood continue to be status signifiers for women today, um, take a look at some of the ways that products still are marketed to women. I think I've got a slide of that if you want to pull it up. Just a quick search. I found a few of these. Right? This is what women are supposed to look like, or at least what markets to women. Or you can look at some of the ways that those unrealistic beauty standards are internalized by women today. If you want to pull up the next slide, um, it's a little bit hard to read this graphic, but it says that 80% of women uh, feel insecure about their bodies as a result of how women are depicted in TV and movies, social media, and magazines. Right? 80% of women. The other statistic says that 42% of girls ages one through three, or grades one through three, uh, think they should be thinner. So we're talking about seven, eight, nine-year-olds. 80% uh, of girls that are age 10 are afraid of being fat. This is the message that's being internalized by these kids, not even teenagers yet, right? Or if you want to look at how motherhood is signified in our world, you can look at this next slide, which shows some pictures of sort of idealized motherhood. My favorite is the mom like exercising with a smile, because I totally <laughs> look like this when I exercise, always. Um, but really, look at these women, right? They're thin, they're beautiful, they have makeup on, their houses are clean, and they're in these like perfect, beautiful moments with their children, right? Again, my home always looks like that. And I, like when I'm serving dinner, I'm always smiling like that. I never just throw the food on the table and like go in my room and just like, ah, doesn't happen. Anyway, like this is the, this is the image that we're competing against, right? Uh, another example is the way that language around body and motherhood are weaponized in the public sphere. Um, particularly in politics, but kind of everywhere. And I found lots of examples of this, but it was pretty vile, so I actually didn't want to give it a platform. Um, so I don't have a slide, but it's out there, right? These narratives about how our worth as women are wrapped up in body image and motherhood are still really present. And you get the sense as you read the story about Leah and Rachel that these two things are kind of being weighed against each other. I picture a scale, and Leah's on one side and Rachel's on the other, and Rachel's more beautiful, so she's higher, and then Leah has children, so she's higher, and every episode of the narrative sort of rebalances the scale. 
And the more that I reflect on this text, the more convinced I am that that's actually the point of the narrative. Because it forces us to ask the question, should these women be compared? Are we really meant to measure each other on a scale against one another? Is that how our humanity works? Do I gain value to the extent that I am more attractive or better at parenting than the people around me? Uh, many years ago, I heard a woman at my church say that uh, comparison is for women what pornography is for men. Comparison is for women what pornography is for men. And obviously that's a little bit simplistic and maybe plays on some not super helpful gender stereotypes, but I think there is an element of truth there. Because there's something within our culture that pushes us, and women in particular, to create this internal scale by which we measure ourselves and compare ourselves to the people around us. And it starts early, right? Young girls learn to notice who's pretty and who's popular and who's good at sports. Something about this world teaches us that we need to be prettier or more clever or better at mothering or whatever that arbitrary scale is. Something teaches us that we have to be better in order to be good enough. And in the social media age, I don't think it's just women, right? It's everybody is being pulled in this direction. In fact, maybe a truer way to put that earlier statement is that regardless of our gender, comparison is culturally pervasive and it's damaging to healthy identity and relationships in the same way that pornography is pervasive and damaging, right? It fractures our sense of identity and it inhibits authentic intimacy in our relationships. If God created us to, to be in community and to be vulnerable with one another and share one, another bur one another's burdens, comparison destroys all of that, right? It destroys our capacity to, to have healthy relationships. And we see that fracturing of healthy community played out in the story about Leah and Rachel. You see that disconnect with Leah and Jacob, how she, every time a child is born, she thinks that's going to be the thing that connects her with her husband. She says, now my husband will love me, right? This time he will embrace me. There's that disconnect. And we see that with Rachel and Jacob too, right? There's that exchange where she yells, give me children, and he's really angry and says, oh, no, I'm not God, right? They also have this disconnect. This competition between these women not only tears the women apart, it fractures their marriage relationships. And it doesn't stop there. As the story continues, we see that the sisters are so caught up in this fight to achieve significance in the family that they're willing to offer up their servants, Ziplah and Bilhah, to be surrogates in childbearing. And there's no reason to suspect that this is consensual on the part of the servants, right? The text doesn't even ask that question. But given the power differential at play here, it's pretty safe to assume that this is not willingly chose, chosen intimacy between a husband and a wife. This is a woman being told that she's going to submit to the advances of a man that she doesn't love and who doesn't love her. So Leah and Rachel, having been deeply harmed by the society that objectifies them and dehumanizes them, they turn around 
and they enact that harm tenfold on these other women who have even less agency, right? Even less power in the world. They, the wounded push their wound onto these other women, the weak trample the weaker, and instead of lifting one another up, they tear one another down and push these other women down so they can climb up on top of them. This, this community is so fractured by this competition. And then later, we see how the women's relationships with God are fractured too, right? There's this weird story about Rachel and Leah fighting over erotic herbs. Also, go ahead and add that to the list of phrases you didn't think I was going to say this morning at church, <laughs> erotic herbs. Um, but most scholars think that these are mandrakes, and they were thought to um, increase sexual arousal and also fertility. Right? So these women are fighting over these herbs and over the right to sleep with their husband because they think that will allow them to control conception. Right? They want to have children. And so they're no longer calling out to God and, and asking him to give them children. They're trying to take things into their own hands. So all of these relationships are fractured, and this family is so profoundly dysfunctional. And dignity is destroyed, and empathy is lost, all in the effort to compete with one another to figure out which woman is better. Does beauty outweigh infertility? Does bearing three sons make a woman more worthy of love than bearing two? And of course, God's unequivocal answer is no, right? No, God's message is you can't gain or lose value through those things. God says to Rachel, you are beloved and you're valuable and the pain that you're experiencing, I see that. And to Leah, he says, you are beloved and you're valuable. And I see you. I see your pain. All of our pain matters, and, and all of our joy matters, and neither of them takes away from our inherent worth. And personally, I really started to understand that message when I took time to sit with each woman's story. And as a side note, um, let me just say that most of the commentaries written on this topic, on this text, are written by men. And we need more women theologians doing the work of interpreting scripture because the men kind of miss the boat here. I was in the Northwest University Library burning their commentaries and like trying not to yell out loud because I was like, ah! Because these men, so often, they don't see the women, right? They want to turn the women into a villain. And so the men talk about Rachel's sinful fixation on having children and how she's selfish and jealous of her sister. And they talk about how foolish Leah is to think that she can gain her husband's affection through childbearing, as if she should just be content with an unhappy marriage in a world where she has no other options. But I don't think either perspective really understands the reality of what these women are experiencing. Because maybe there's not a villain in the story. Maybe there's just hurting women who experience pain and struggle to overcome that pain within the confines of a kind of messed up society, right? It's not just a story about the choices that these women are making. It's a story about the choices that are available to them. 
And the pain that these women are experiencing is deep. You know, I've shared just a little bit about my own journey with infertility. And so when I read Rachel's story, I can't see a villain. Maybe it's bias, but I just see a hurting woman. And I imagine her in her tent at night, listening to Leah's sons babbling and giggling and calling out for mom. And I resonate with her when she says, if I don't have children, I may as well be dead. Right? I know that longing. The narrator of this story says that she was jealous. But I think those of us who have seen or experienced infertility know that jealousy is such a weak description of that longing. I don't see a villain in Rachel. I see someone who's hurting. And I see a hurting woman in Leah as well. Imagine what it must be like to be viewed as so unacceptable that your father thinks the only way for you to get married is to trick someone. What must it feel like to be married to somebody who didn't choose you? To wake up the morning after your wedding and look over at your husband and then watch him recoil as he figures out he's been tricked. To long for affection and intimacy and love and have none of those things. Or to settle for an unhappy marriage because in this world ruled by men, an unhappy marriage is better than no marriage at all. This is deep pain, right? This, this is real pain. And when I, t- I take time to sit with these women's stories, to empathize with that pain, I hear God saying to both women, I see you. I, I see you. To Leah, he says, I see you and your pain is sacred to me. And to Rachel, he says, I see you and your pain is sacred to me. I don't see God comparing their stories or their worth or weighing their pain. I see a God of compassion weeping with the unloved Leah and weeping with Rachel as she longs to hold a child of her own. And in both instances, the grace is that God chooses to see. The the Bible talks about a God who knows everything, and yet we're told that he sees Leah. There's an emphasis on God's recognition of what she's experiencing. He's not simply aware of it. He's present in her pain. And he responds to her by giving her the gift of motherhood. And it's worth noting that the language here is really active. It says God opened her womb. Um, One of the commentaries I read that didn't make me yell when I was in the library um, was by John Goldengay, who was actually one of my favorite seminary professors. And he talks about how in the beginning, when God created the world, he bestowed generative power on the animate world, which is a fancy way of saying God made the beings on earth capable of conceiving and giving birth. That's just sort of inherent in, in who they are. And so very often, scripture seems to talk about that event as like a natural occurrence, right? It's not necessarily something that involves God's direct action. It just happens. Beings have children, and, and human beings have children. And yet there are instances in scripture where we do see God taking a direct action to open or to close a womb. For example, when Sarah is really, really old, God opens her womb so that she can have children, right? It's not just sort of him allowing her body to follow its natural course. There's a direct intervention. God's doing something unique. And we're led to believe that something like that is happening here with Leah, 
right? God is opening her womb as an act of compassion. There's something unique happening here. And Golden Gate also points out that the language around Rachel is a lot more passive. We don't see God closing her womb. We're just told that she's unable to have children. And so Golden Gate concludes that whereas Leah's fertility is a gift from God, Rachel's infertility is just one of those things. God simply hasn't intervened in the course of her body. And while that may, you know, maybe there's some truth to that analysis, honestly, I find it a little bit insufficient. It feels a little bit like a hair-splitting way of letting God off the hook when really we know that he could just as easily have opened Rachel's womb when he opened Leah's, right? But he didn't. In my mind, his inaction is just as significant as his action. And usually, this is the point in the sermon where I tie it with a nice red bow and I give you the answer that actually does answer that question for me. Um, But I honestly didn't find one. And really, I think that question of God's inaction, not just in this story, but sort of in general, is always going to be one of the biggest challenges of faith for me. Because it doesn't make sense, and I don't understand it. And I'm not sure if I ever will, but I want to believe that God is good. And I want to believe that God is just. And so for me... Faith means making peace with that unanswered question. I just have to let it be. And I have to allow myself to receive the good things that do come from God. Even if those things aren't exactly what I want or when I want them, faith means I let the question stand and I receive those things as good things. So I didn't find an answer. But what I did find, the good thing that I did find, was the grace that God sees Rachel's pain. Verse 22 says God remembered Rachel, and he responded to her, and he did let her conceive. And it didn't come when she wanted it, and for some women it doesn't come ever, right? But the text is clear that God is present with her, and he's aware of her longing, and he remembers her. And ultimately, I think that that's the gift that I found in this text. That's the bit of grace. That both of these women, they're experiencing deep pain as they try to create belonging and significance in a world that gives them so few avenues for finding those things. And yet God's message to both of these women is, I see you, and you are valuable and I love you, and no reductive status workers, markers that this world offers you are going to change that, right? You are already loved. You are already valuable. And to both of these women, God says, your story matters, right? I see it. Your pain matters, and your joy matters, and I see it. And even when we don't have all of the answers and we can't make sense of a world in which some longings are fulfilled and others aren't, there's still grace in that message. God says, you are loved and you are valuable and you are seen. I want to pray for us. Um, But before I do that, I want to pause again and just give you some space for self-care. 
um, regardless of your gender, because these things hit everyone. If you are feeling like today brought up some grief, or you want somebody to pray for you, or you just want somebody to make space for you to tell your story, um, I want to invite you to do that this morning. I'm happy to be that person for you anytime, or um, Pastor Magdiel, Pastor Dave, and Pastor Allison are all willing to be that person, or just grab a friend that you trust and share your story. Um, we don't have the answers, but we are the community that is the hands and feet of Jesus, so we want to live out that truth, that you're seen and that you're valuable and that your story matters. Amen. God, oh, I just feel like I always have more questions than answers. Um, but we want to trust you. God, I trust you that you are good and you are compassionate. And so if there are people today whose hearts are tendered, who are grieving, who are struggling, who are feeling like they never measure up, that they can never be good enough, God, in each of those places, would you bring your grace? Would you bring the message that these people are loved and they are valuable? These are your kids, and they matter, and their stories matter. God, we thank you for your grace, and you, we just pray that you would give us ears to hear that message. Um, just Would your Holy Spirit just sing it over us? God, that we matter and that we are loved and that we are seen. In Jesus' name, amen.